We are working through this series here on the thinking biblically about work. And what's been exciting to me about this is kind of one of the things that all of us are engaged in the most of our lives, which is work, is getting to have some context. And context is important. In fact, uh, in, after second service, one of those odd non-contextual statements happened to me. My daughter came running up to me. I didn't even know she, they were, my wife was going to be here. And she's like, Andrew needs a spanking. That was the straight-up sentence that she greeted me with, and I'm going like, what in the world is going on, you know? Is this because you're upset that Andrew needs a spanking? Does Andrew need some? So it's all this kind of like odd context. Finally, I find out he's in throwing fits and causing problems and doing stuff. And we're like, okay, I'll handle this later. But the, the, the answer is just basically sometimes you get a statement that's like an insider statement. Now, sometimes you get a statement that's an inside joke. You start laughing at it because you know what's going on, but nobody else gets it around you. Or perhaps you're at church and you've heard words used like prayer warrior, and you're like, is that like an ISIS person? What's going on? I don't get what a prayer warrior is. It's like we were joking around. Maybe we should use prayer clerics. That sounds strange enough, too. The insider language can occur at churches, can occur inside groups. And what shapes and cleans up all that stuff is the story, having been around, being in the context, knowing what's going on. Context is king and stories are important. In fact, this is why um, what we've been doing is trying to put work in a context, trying to put work within the bigger story that it fits in. Otherwise, work is kind of this random thing that people go do. Why are we doing it? What's the point? Why are we here? And story always puts all of this in context. And so we've been looking at a particular story. I haven't really been explicit about this, but I'll be so more today. And that particular story that we've been rolling through and looking at in this series is the gospel story. In fact, what we're going to discover is that this gospel story is something bigger than many of us even imagined. That the gospel is not just simply a self-transformation a salvation from my sins being forgiven. But it is a greater thing than that. It's a redemption of even bigger things than just you and me. In fact, the gospel transforms more than just a person. It actually can be a transformation of work. That's what we're going to look at in context to work. As we think about this, we're talking about salvation. And in fact, what's interesting in Ephesians, at the beginning of the book, as Paul is kind of laying it out, he says this. In him, speaking about Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Right there, we all as Christians, if you've believed that Jesus Christ has borne your sin on the cross, you're like, amen. That's exactly who I am. I am somebody who's been forgiven of my sins by what Jesus did on the cross because it's been given to me by the riches of his grace. This is according to the riches of his grace, which God lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will. This is, a, this is some mystery, something he didn't reveal immediately in the Old Testament. It was, it was there, but it took Christ's appearing to make this all make sense, and which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. What's this plan? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So is he just planning to unite only people? Is that what his plan is? Some people have read it this way, and they think this verse actually says that everybody will be saved. But that's not what's going on here. When he says all, unite all things in him, he means all categories of things in heaven and on earth. So that everything would be submissive to Christ as king. And so there's this reality that God is redeeming things even now 
that are not just us. He's redeeming the whole world. We can look at another passage where Paul talks about the, when the humanity is resurrected, when we are resurrected from the dead, all the earth will be resurrected. There will be a, a new earth, a new heavens. Things will be put right. They'll be go back to God's original intent. And so what God is doing in the gospel is he's not just simply transforming or saving us from our sins. He's actually transforming the world. He's actually seeking to undo the sinful destruction that has occurred to the environment, to our work, to ourselves, to our families, to everything. In fact, this story is typically known in this fashion. The gospel story is a creation, a fall, and a redemption. That's what we did. We started off in creation. We looked at, um, we looked at Adam and Eve, and we looked at the God creating man in his own image. And we realize work is not something that is a necessary evil. It's not something that's been imposed upon us because God's angry at us and and we've done something wrong. No, we, we work because we're made in God's image. We work because God worked first. God was the, the creator who, who fashioned the world. And we also then in work is spo- are supposed to express who we've been made to be. As we worship God, we get to make culture and make something of this world. And we kind of got excited about that. But then something went wrong. We looked at this last week, this fall. Adam and Eve sinned. And in essence, what happened is in our sin, we became guilty. In our guilt, when we look inside of ourselves, we become ashamed. We become uh, broken, we separated from ourselves, and so we get scared uh, from each other finding these things out. We get scared of God because He does know and He's going to judge it. And so we hide. And we can hide at our work. We can hide behind things. We can, we can simply hide in such a manner that God is so far from us that everything becomes meaningless. And we looked at all the ways that work was broken by our sin, by our personal sin. And then we move to this portion where Jesus Christ has shown up on the scene. And in his life, in his work, as he ministers and cares for people, as he proclaims what's known as the kingdom of God, he comes to this place where he dies upon a cross and is resurrected from the dead. And in his resurrection, on his death, he takes our sin, and in his resurrection, he begins to redeem all of those human beings who have trusted in him. And that, with that comes a redemption of culture, our redemption of the culture of in us, the culture that comes through us. There's supposed to be this transformation. But there's also a tension here, and I want to dive more into this tension than just that. There's a tension between this. Like, say we would set up a pole on this side. We stretch a, a, a stretch a rubber band or something between, and you have a pole on this side. And so there's this tension that's existing between these two poles. As they're being tried to be pulled together. On one side is God's original intent of creation. All the good and the beautiful and the expression and the things that give us meaning and hope and why we go to work and wanting to have an identity and and knowing all this good stuff. And the other side is the mess, the fall. All the brokenness and the sin and the meaninglessness and the using of people and the selfishness and, and just the gunk of work. And what's important is that Jesus has come right in the middle of this tension. But the tension isn't fully resolved yet. It's still there, still pulled tight, but he's managing it, he's shaping it, he's changing it. And this is important because there's a lot of Christians out there who simplify this stuff. There's a lot of Christians out there who say, oh yeah, God created this, and, and Jesus came along, and there was, this, there was this fall, and Jesus comes along, and just he took it all away. There's no more fall, there's no more problem. It's all okay now. Except you and I go to work, and what do we experience? Broken relationships, 
anger, frustration, work not getting done, our own hopes and expectations not being met. Things are still broken, yet it seems like there's supposed to be these, this hope and this new destiny and things are right. Well, this tension is exactly what redemption comes into. That you and I now live in a completely fallen world that God is redeeming, but has not yet returned to fully deal with. And so you and I have been awoken to God's intention. We're awoken because we have a relationship with God. And everything that he's intended is now ours again. Yet we're messed up and broken. And somehow in redemption, God's going to use all of that to bring about this new thing of work in work, this new reality called the kingdom of God. And what we see here is that this, this tension creates a lot of interesting things. We can't simplify this as Christians. You have to think. You have to get engaged. You have to actually realize the gospel is not just about me being saved. It's actually entering into your workplace and it's getting into that mess and it's getting into your home and getting into the mess of your home and trying to work it out, almost like a detergent cleaning things up. And so you and I, strangely enough, are that detergent. You and I have been placed there as salt and light. You and I have been placed there as the change agents for our work environments, for our home environments, for all these things. And that change can be powerful. I want to give you a couple of references, just to give you kind of an idea. And I want to note something. There's no way we're going to cover how the gospel affects all of work today, by the way. It's just not, not possible. That'd take probably a couple of conferences or something like that. But what I want to do is really dive in and show you guys that this kind of thing is always happening. God is doing this and he's powerfully changing this. And it begins in a world of work. One of the things that occurred in the ancient world that's been around for, with humanity forever is slavery. Now, slavery is one of those uncomfortable conversations because as Christians, we, we don't like slavery. We know it's wrong. And in our culture, we fight slavery and we have, we've fought a war over slavery. And yet, it looks like the Bible endorses slavery. People go, look, the Bible seems to endorse slavery. Before we get into this, I want you to note, slavery in the Bible is radically different than the slavery you and I know as, as people from the U.S. The Western church and slavery, um, uh, the West, sorry, the West, and slavery in the West that started in the 1400s and on was a radically different thing where we stole people out of their homelands, drug them across for no reason, not out of war, nothing else, and just put them there. That's the wind. Don't worry, it won't fall over. So... The wind likes to blow this place around a little bit. But the point is that the slavery in the ancient world was more like endangered servitude. What happened is you would owe a large amount of money and you'd have to basically pay off your debt. You couldn't go in and sign a, BK, a bankruptcy notice and turn it in on papyrus. That just wasn't how it worked. You went and you put yourself in servitude of the person that you owed, and that was called slavery. That kind of slavery, plus other kinds with war, kind of managed the entire world of Rome and the ancient world in general. And so slavery was this known entity, and still not a good thing technically, but it was at least something that, that wasn't what we understand it. And it's in this context that the gospel entered into. And it's in this context the gospel began to work in a very weird way. Before it tried to change the entire structure, it started changing hearts. Notice how Paul writes here in the book of Ephesians. He says, bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. Notice right here, he says, guys, I know you have a master. Now I'm going to tell you something. There's a greater master. 
His name is Jesus. And you need to have a heart condition that serves Jesus, that serves your master above. And when you do that, it'll line everything else up. Don't do it grumblingly. Don't do it just, just angry and all frustrated. No, do it for the Lord. And people go, well, you'd expect somebody to tell a slave to do that. You'd want them to obey their master. Yet he goes on. Notice this as we continue. He says, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And suddenly in one adept move, the gospel comes in and takes these authority structures and just whoop, levels them. Just listen. Master, you don't get to yell and scream at these guys. These, you, need to, you need to treat them like your master's treating you because you're a bond slave to Christ. You have the same master. You're on equal playing field. You're made in the image of God is in essence what he's going to. He's, and he's equalizing all these structures that were sinful, changing heart conditions in these situations. And so at the table of communion, you'd have the slave and you'd have the slave masters sitting there as equals eating. He couldn't tell them, get up and go serve. They were like, they were brothers. You couldn't do that to your brother. You couldn't do that to your sister. And so suddenly this equalization occurs in the heart condition that starts a movement rolling forward. In fact, there's another passage in another book here in the book of Philemon. And this is an interesting segment because Paul has met a runaway slave named Onesimus, and sent him home to Philemon, who is his owner, with this letter. Now, Paul has discipled Onesimus and sent him home. And so now Philemon gets this letter, and this is what it tells him. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. In other words, now that he's a Christian, he's not going to be your bond slave anymore. He's going to be your brother, especially to me. How much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. In other words, as a freed man. And in this context becomes an interesting conversation that begins to birth, that we have an equalization of people. We have a, even when they come to Christ, there's a destruction of the concept of slavery in general. And eventually these undercurrents of the biblical text, these undercurrents of being made in the image of God would lead to a man named William Wilberforce and to abolitionists across the country who are Christians dedicated to the eradication of the American slave trade and the European slave trade for the sake of people being made in the same image, the image of God. And so while culture in one sense was radically transformed in its sin by the heart condition, later that very same word, that very same gospel would start to radically transform and reform the culture in total. Fast forward a hundred and some years. Do we still have slavery? Absolutely. In fact, it's a horrible kind of slavery that we're encountering today. Because here's the problem. The human heart will never fully eradicate sin. We live in a fallen world. That's why I said there's a tension. Eliminate slavery in one time of human history. Eventually, we'll invent it again and we'll live in it again. Eliminate certain things in one time period. It will come back because the human heart is sinful. We live in a sinful world. But that doesn't mean we're not responsible as the change agents to continue to fight for the gospel, the transformation of, the, of human beings in society, in work, and in our own hearts. It starts with heart change, ends up in society change. The gospel 
changes things, radically changes things, including work. Notice, I picked these passages on purpose because you could easily insert for master and slave, boss and employee. It's in essence what it was in that time period. It was the work world. The gospel entered the work world and began to change hearts, equalizing bosses and employees in a sense. Fighting for justice in certain areas. Guys, the gospel does very powerful things in the hearts of people and in the structures of society. Now, this can get complex. So let's just start here. Why don't we just consider the first change that needs to happen is in our own hearts. We work now to better the lives of others in the world. Because we've been redeemed, that should change us to be transforming agents. Where do I get this thought from? Well, actually, I get it from Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 23. Why don't you go there with me? It's in an interesting section dealing with forgiveness and reconciliation. And so it's, Jesus has just been asked a question by Peter about how many times he should forgive. And Jesus tells him, in fact, you should forgive him as many times as you possibly can, is basically what he says. And then he gives him this parable, beginning in verse 23 of Matthew chapter 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, note, uh, a talent is about 20 years' wages. So he owes 10,000 times 20 years' wages. So he owes a lot of money. I don't even know how you spend that, much kind of, that kind of money, let alone borrow that much money. But that's how much he owes him. So in other words, it's an unpayable debt. That's what it's being said here. It is so radically huge, so large, it's not payable. There's no amount of resources to cover it. When he began to settle, one was brought to him and owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his master, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything, which is kind of laughable. And out of pity for him, The master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And a hundred denarii was was a day's wage. The denarius was a day's wage. So a hundred days wage. So he owes him about, you know, a quarter's worth of work here. And he's going, hey, give me the money, is what he tells him. Out of, uh, so, but when the same man is, is owed him a hundred denarii, and he's seizing him, beginning to choke him, saying, "Pay what you owe." Verse twenty-nine. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, "Have patience with me, and I will pay you." He refused, and wouldn't put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, "You wicked servant." I forgave you all this debt that you, may, that you pleaded with me. And should, you have, and, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him into the jailers until he should pay his, pay his last debt. Pay all his debt, sorry. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's pretty serious. The implication here is beyond just forgiveness. While the context is forgiveness, saying, if you've been forgiven so much, you've been forgiven an unpayable debt of sin, because the king represents God. God has forgiven us an unpayable debt of sin, 
unpayable. There is no amount of good works. We're expected to do good works. In fact, what we owe is a debt of good works. And so you can't do good works to pay it off because that's what you have to give God. You owe him a huge unpayable debt and he forgives us. And so what do we do? We turn around and don't forgive others. He gives us this gospel. This gospel is supposed to transform our hearts so that it transforms how we deal with people. So that when somebody owes us something, we can forgive them. When somebody's cursed us, we can bless them because we are willing to take upon ourselves the very gospel that saved us. The very actions of Jesus become the actions we should live out. And this is what's interesting to me then, is that this shapes the way that we think. How many of you have, let's just ask in a business setting, if you work in a, in a corporate business setting, have you ever prayed for your competitors to be blessed? That sounds odd. You're, why would I pray for my competitor to be blessed? Because Jesus told us to bless our enemies. But yeah, we don't think of our competitor, oh, my competitor's not my enemy. Well, in a corporate world, technically, you think of your competitor as your enemy, in a sense. And what you're doing is you're saying, no, they're wrong for being, doing what they're doing. Well, it gets into complicated thoughts here for a second, but let's just put it this way. If you believe your company provides a good and the competitor provides a good, why would we not ask God to bless them and bless us so that the good can spread? Or when we see that they're blessed, there are more people that care, are cared for because there are more jobs for them to have, which blesses our society, which increases more people out there who can purchase maybe even your products or whatever. You go, well, they're my competitors. Right, which causes you to maybe hone your own skill to serve even better. And so by you blessing your competitor, you both learn to serve better. It becomes a better world in a sense. Why would we add in the gospel that we would bless our enemies? Because Jesus blessed us and we were his enemies. This is the gospel. One simple way that it can show up at work. Another simple way to think of this as we bless others and, and the world, as we live to better others in the world, is to think of yourself in relationship with the other people in your, in your office or in your, in, your work, in your work life. How many of you guys know right now the, of a tension at your work right now? There's a tension at your work. People are fighting. They don't like each other. Come on. Don't, don't. Okay. Majority of us are all facing something like this. There are two routes that people can take. When you have debate going on at your work between two coworkers or even perhaps yourself, there can be a sense of what's called peacekeeping. Peacekeeping is where we play the tolerance game. Oh, live and let live. Let them have their little fight. I don't have to get involved. It's none of my business. You know, whatever. And we just keep the peace. Peacekeeping is a lack of conflict. It's trying to act like nothing's wrong. It's trying to make sure nothing's wrong or whatever. But gospel isn't about peacekeeping. The gospel is about peacemaking. And what's powerful about peacemaking is that it implies that we're going to step into the gap of the division to bring about amendedness, to try to bring about a connectedness, to try to heal the wound. It may even require that we step in and receive the fire, that we receive the tension, because this is what the gospel was. It was peacemaking. Jesus stepped in between the wrath of God and humanity, and it suffered upon himself to make peace. At work, we may be called to be the people who have to make peace. That's not comfortable. It's not safe. It could cost you your job. 
But in many ways, what you're seeing is as we act in this way, we are allowing the gospel to be implanted in our workplace, to change hearts, and perhaps from there to give an example, to begin to change culture. And as that culture begins to change, to change structure. But it starts in the hearts. And it starts in the boldness of us to live the gospel out. And when we do this, we're going to go through tensions. We're going to go through problems, which is what I think God expects. In Romans 8, 28, it says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It goes on to say that we would be predestined to become the image of Christ, that God is using all of this stuff to shape us into our hero, to make us like Jesus. God is using all these things to challenge and shape us. And as we are shaped, our hearts are changed. We step in and God willing, it begins to shape our world around us. The gospel begins to change work. Even greater is the ability for it to change why you do your work. If your work in a greater way is caring for the world, it's a noble act. Because Christ came to do good for the world. The gospel calls us to look at our jobs. Are we doing good? Some of us may have to look at our jobs and go, I don't know if we're doing that good. You have to search it out and look. But some of us can say, yeah, I feel like we're doing a good. Good. Keep up with that. If you're not in a job that you can explain that, you need to wrestle with God and find out, is God, am I supposed to be here? Is this honest, good work? And there's so many problems there. See how this can get sticky? This isn't simple. This isn't just like, well, this is the line. I don't do that. In fact, one of the best ways to explain how sticky this can get is this. There was a man in New York, according to this book I was reading, and he had this particular situation. He was the primary lead in a project, in a project on an account where he was going to invest money into this group. They knew the investment would come back almost five, three to five times. What kind of company gives back a three to five times investment? Well, when you find out it's a company that he believed was so immoral it, would, it destroys lives, he didn't know what to do. But the company isn't a Christian company. And the investment company, he had a division underneath him that was going to need, was going to make a windfall from this and was going to support their families with this, was going to be good. And his problem was he had worked really hard to show himself a faithful person to the company, caring about the company, looking out for the best for the company. And now this, this option comes up and everybody's like, we need to do this. This is awesome. And his personal conviction is this is evil. And he didn't know what to do. He got away, got some past, you know, pastoral help and talked it out and eventually came to the conclusion, for the sake of these people that I'm caring for, not to lose face with them so that I can bring them the gospel, I will say yes. And then he turned around and said, but I will receive no bonus or money from this investment. And he made it clear. I don't want any, any money off of this. I hate that we have to do this, is what he said. Which opened the door. One, it showed that I'm willing to do this because I care about you guys. You don't have this conviction. But my conviction stands, and it helped him grow in their eyes and brought the gospel in clearly as he thought and wrestled with the reality of God's intention and a messed up world. Two poles intention to bring about redemption. Guys, don't just simply make knee-jerk reactions when it comes to these things. We have to pray through these things, work through these things. They're difficult things. And that's because we live in a world that's got both these poles pulling us in different directions. Now, 
What's another thing that the gospel does? Well, work changes the way that we view things. It can stop from, from us fearing. We work not fearing any longer because that like our work is going to fail, that our work isn't going to be worth anything. We can stop that fear because God's going to use all kinds of work. Here's what's an interesting thing. When I mean God will use all kinds of work, I mean all kinds. I mean, let me put it this way. Have you ever, do you have that one guy at your work or that one girl at your work who's better than you at, at, at a skill? They're kind. They're even moral. And they do good, hard work. And you look at it and you're just like, what is with this person? You find out they're not Christians at all. Anybody ever ran into that problem? A lot of people do. And it can throw Christians off. Because we think, well, if they're not a Christian, they're awful evil sinners. They can't do anything that's good. No, time out. That's not how it works. Most likely, God saved the worst, and the best people are outside the store. But anyway, the idea is simply that what we're seeing here is that God is doing something important. It's called common grace. Common grace is an important issue that we need to bring back to the church. And here's where it comes from. It starts here. In Romans chapter 1, God is revealing himself. Notice at the end. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Speaking of, of all of humanity. He is, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. They've been shown off ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So God is saying, look, I've made a world that shouts about me. You can know about God from the created order. You can know about God from the created people he made in his image. Even if they're not following Christ, people still are made in God's image. People still live out his image, even if they're not trying at times. Second, Jesus pointed out that God has great provision for humanity. That he cares for the sparrows, how much more will he care for you? He cares for the lilies of the field, how much more will he care for you? He's providing constantly. And God doesn't just provide through Christians. There are some amazingly good and powerful inventions that have helped humanity out and changed humanity that were made by non-Christians. And we can readily accept that. And this is common grace. God will provide through people. God will provide through unredeemed people. And God may be providing options and insight from somebody who isn't saved at your workplace. Now, what do we do with that? You do this. That's awesome. You praise God for the good. When you see good in somebody, you don't go like, well, he's a sinner. I'm not going to get near it. No. You go, what if it's as simple as saying, you know, I love how God uses you. I don't believe in God. Well, I do. And I see God using you. Really? Yeah, you promote the good. You do good things. Do you even know that you're doing these good things? You're so good at this. I just, I admire the skill God has given you. He's gifted you so greatly. You can actually praise and worship God for what he's done in somebody's life who doesn't even know God's doing it. Imagine the kind of encouraging person you become in your workplace because you step in and you see where God is working and you promote and you get excited. In fact, what's awesome about this is you don't have to fear if you sidle up next to a non-Christian to tackle a righteous cause. You want to buy Tom's shoes? Great. You don't have to freak out. <laughs> Christian company, you know, or feel like you have to justify everybody as a Christian company because they have a heart for the poverty or a heart for another group or a situation out there that we have a heart for. 
In fact, we as, even, we as Christians should be able to sidle up with non-Christians and go, we're going to storm that righteous direction and not fear we're compromising our faith. Because what we're doing is we're standing with them going, we're going to storm that righteous direction. You're going to join us? Yeah, because God said this, 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 and this. And they go, really? I just thought it was bad. Or it was again, my morals say this. Well, you want to know why your morals say that? And we have a reason. We have a strength. We can touch the life and give them the insight that maybe they've missed, even though they're doing a good thing from God's revealed world. You know where I get, you go, well, how how is that part of the gospel? Well, God in Jesus Christ showed up and he needed to redeem humanity. And so God enlisted a group of people called humanity, all sinful, all broken, so they would crucify him so that he could redeem them. Remember, God uses everything. He doesn't waste anything. And sometimes I think we're missing out on opportunities to encourage the good that God is doing because we're going, well, that's not a Christian. I don't know what to do with that. You just go up and you praise the good that you see God doing. And so really what I'm trying to tell you is that for us as Christians, we can see in this tension God moving. And this is, this is powerful because guess what? When you go to work, you go with a holy calling. You now go as, as somebody who is not a secular person to the workplace. There is no secular or sacred work for the Christian. In fact, what we have is a priesthood. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Peter's talking to the church. He says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When you go to work, you guys are priests at work. You don't leave your religion in the room here on Sunday morning. You don't just leave it in your home and personal and privatize it in your cubicle. I'm not saying you be obnoxious, but I say you live like a priest. What does a priest do? They are the bridge between humanity and God. They show up and they represent God. They bring the problems of their workplace before God. Do you pray regularly for your coworkers? Do you have a prayer list that lifts up your coworkers for the betterment of their lives? That we are the priests in our workplace to care for them and to lift them up. Do we counsel them well from the Word of God? Do we counsel them from the counsel of God? Do we enter in and challenge them with the thoughts of God as a good priest would? Because that's what you are in your workplace if you're a Christian. And so don't assume that the pastors and all of us are the sacred people and you're all the secular work. No. God has deemed all of your work as sacred to Him. And so you are indeed that priest that goes to that place. I want you to think through that fact as you go because it's another way of not fearing, that, but God's using your work in a great way. And finally, the gospel gives us a true foundation for how we do our work. And all that confusion when you saddle up next to a, a, a non-Christian who's doing good things, they, don't, they may not know why, they may not have any conclusions on that. We get to give a true foundation for why we do our work. We get to walk in with a knowledge. Ethics is one thing. How many of you guys have taken an ethics course, business ethics class, something like that for your, for your school or for work, right? And a lot of our ethics classes at work now that are presented all have to do with one concept. It's called tolerance. 
So it's all about tolerating different people groups and, you know, making sure you don't have sexual harassment happening. Here's what I think is funny. Here's how weird ethics are, right? They teach it. They probably have taught a sexual harassment course or, or informational gathering at a pornography in, in industry. How do you have a sexual harassment class with a pornography company? Does that make any sense to anybody else? But that's what our culture will do. Because ethics are just these rules that we put together so we don't get sued. Or we make sure we're treating people okay. They have nothing to do with actual right or wrong. As Christians, we get to walk in and when we see ethics and we see right ethics, we step in and we say, this is ethics, this is truth, because it's grounded in the knowledge of who God is and what he has done. It's not a guessing game for us. It's based on a deep, intimate relationship that I have with the living God who has saved me. And so when it comes, how is this part of the gospel? Because Jesus sat there in the Garden of Gethsemane and God said he was going to do this. And he goes, okay, not my will but yours be done. And when we have that mentality, that's a gospel mentality. When we enter into our work and we go, God, I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done. We enter into the gospel living itself. And that looks a lot like this. Whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Our ethics are based from one simple question. Who's your boss, really? And what would he have you do? When you go to work, you work for the Lord, which is always going to better lives. And now, it's not always safe. And not in American sense of betterment. But in the ultimate sense, you're going to be a priest. You're going to be a peacemaker. You're going to live the gospel right there in the middle of your workplace. And it comes down to that simple question, who's your boss? Who are you really working for? And what would he want you to do? That's our challenge in redemption. In a messed up, fallen world, though God had great intentions, Jesus has saved us to represent him and to make this redemption happen. To bring it about. Now this is the action part. Next week we'll talk about the words part. Speaking the gospel at work. But I just want to give you guys a sense of how God is transforming work through his gospel. And it comes down to that question that maybe you guys need to talk to the Lord about. God, you're my boss. How do you need me to work here at work?